The following message is made available for you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emanuelmora.com. Uh, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to conclude this chapter today, talking about what happened after the, the, uh, the battle at Aphek. And so uh, let's read in uh, chapter 4. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to, to read along. Uh, with what you got. It'll be on the screen, but starting in verse 12, this is what the Holy Spirit uh, tells us. That same day, a Benjaminite man ran from the battle and came to Shiloh. His clothes were torn, and there was dirt on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair beside the road waiting because he was anxious about the ark of God. When the man entered the city to give a report, the entire city cried out. Eli heard the outcry and asked, Why this commotion? The man came quickly and reported to Eli. At that time, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes didn't move because he couldn't see. The man said to Eli, I'm the one who came from the battle. I fled there uh, today. What happened, my son? Eli asked. The messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines, and also there was a great slaughter among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off of the chair by the city gate, and since he was old and heavy, his neck broke and he died. Eli had judged Israel for 40 years. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth, and when she heard the news about the capture of God's ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, She collapsed and gave birth because her labor pains came on her. As she was dying, the women taking care of her said, Don't be afraid, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, referring to the capture of the ark of God and to the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. The glory has departed from Israel, she said, because the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray. Father, in in this historical retelling, Lord, we get a chilling reminder of needing to know you and to be with you in all circumstances. And so, Father, I pray that you would change hearts and minds through the reading of these words and through the preaching of these words, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. It was one of the most iconic commercials from the 1980s. Two older ladies were sitting, uh, admiring this giant hamburger bun, how fluffy it was and how big it was. And then this other older lady comes up right beside them. Some of you know right where I'm going with this. And they they take off the hamburger bun and there's this tiny little hamburger patty inside the bun. And this other older lady comes walking up and she looks at the bun and looks at the hamburger and she goes, hey, where's the beef? Where's the beef? And and it was was a massive hit. A subsequent commercial had the the first two ladies on the phone with a manager from whatever chain store this was, uh, seemingly McDonald's or Burger King. And they're trying to figure out what do they say to this manager about this small patty of beef. And then the other older lady comes up and she steals the phone from them and goes right, hey, where's the beef? 
it was a hit for Wendy's. And in fact, it, uh, it raised their sales by over 40% in 1984 when it was originally premiered. And in the text today, there are two people that uh, are asking a similar question. Uh, one is an old and blind priest, and the other is a young mother. However, both of these two are not trying to peddle beef uh, or increase any company's sales. In fact, what they were asking is a much more serious question. Israel had just suffered from a national tragedy. Uh, they went out to battle against their arch enemies who were uh, from Philistia. In the first phase of the battle, they lost 4,000 uh, 4, soldiers. And then when they retreated back to the barracks, they tried to figure out what was wrong, and they realized that their loss was not a strategic one, it was a theological one. Because they asked the question in verse 3, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? And as we pointed out last week, they were asking the right question, but they were not allowing God any space to answer at all. Instead, their proposed solution was to take God out to the battlefield themselves. And when they got the Ark of the Covenant, which is this wooden chest uh, that they believed held the presence of God, uh, and in their mind they, uh, they could just take this box out to the battlefield, and God would surely bring victory. No question about it. God was going to do this for them. And what they got instead was defeat. 30,000 soldiers died. The high priest's sons were killed in battle. And worst of all, their national symbol, the Ark, had been captured by the Philistines. And in their understanding, God was gone. He was no longer with them. And so now as the news reached Eli, this 98-year-old high priest and his daughter-in-law, they are not left asking, where's the beef? But they're left asking, where is the glory? Now, glory is a word that we don't use much in the English language. But to these two, glory was synonymous with the presence of God. His character, his attributes, and the most important was his presence with them. And it's all gone. Everything that they knew to be true, everything that they knew uh, to be good, was now gone. And this historical retelling is not only a crucial in the history of Israel, but it's also crucial for you and me and for the life of the church in the 21st century. Every one of us have, are, or will face situations that will cause us to ask, where is the glory? Where is God? And through this story, we not only learn about the glory of God and his holiness, but we'll also see the importance of repentance and sustaining faith uh, in the lives of those who trust in Jesus. So let's look at two things today. The first is, is that we need to feel the weight of God's glory. We need to feel the weight of God's glory. Now, when we approach a biblical narrative, particularly in the Old Testament, we need to remember these two words. Details matter. The details matter. And the writer of 1 Samuel has given us some information that's really helpful for us to know the magnitude of the situation of these events that preceded our text today. 
uh, of course, we as the readers, we know what happened at the Battle of Aphek. We know that 40,000 people died. We know that Hophni and Phinehas were killed. We know that the Ark of God was taken. But what we come to now is the details of the news coming to Shiloh. Look in verse 12. That same day, a Benjaminite man ran from the battle and came to Shiloh. His clothes were torn and there was dirt on his head. Now, why is it that the writer wouldn't just say that a man ran from battle to go talk to Eli? Why does he inform us that he was a Benjaminite? It's because the details matter. The, the, the men of Benjamin were known as fierce warriors. They were like the special ops people of the, uh, of the Israelites. So if a, if a Benjaminite man is fleeing from the battle, then this is bad. This is bad news. Further notice that the text says that he ran from the battle to Shiloh. If you remember from last week, we said that Shiloh was about 22 miles away from Aphek. And so here is this guy that has already faced a, a mentally exhausting, a, a physically exhausting, and a spiritually exhausting battle with a soul-crushing end. He runs 22 miles to Shiloh. That's about the distance from here to Cambridge. It's almost a marathon. And this guy races to Shiloh because the news is so important. His clothes are torn. There's dirt on his head. And you might say, well, of course, he came from battle. He's going to be dirty. He's going to be torn up. But this was a symbol of mourning and grief to an Israelite male. He arrives probably breathless. In verse 13, it tells us that when the man entered the city to give a report, the entire city cried out. Now, Eli is going to be deaf, and uh, not deaf, but he's blind, so he can't really see what's going on, but he can certainly hear this. You know, sometimes uh, summertime at our house is, a, is an interesting auditory experience. If I take the dog out at night, I can uh, usually hear a herd of cows mooing from a distance. I don't know where they are. I just know what direction they're coming from, and I can hear them. Those are some loud cows. During the week of the fair, um, every night, there's a couple of things that, well, a few things that we hear, and usually it sounds like this. <laughs> about midnight. That's what we hear. So it makes sense to me that Eli would hear the city crying out. And now the ark and the religious centerpiece of Israel is gone. Seemingly with it. God himself. Who do they look to? And the obvious answer is the high priest, he's the one that's supposed to be closest with God. He alone had access to the holiest place. He alone would be the one that the people should uh, look to in, in such a, a disaster. And where was this man? Look in verse 13. Verse 13 says that he was sitting on his chair beside the road waiting because he was anxious about the ark. And before we fault him, for just sitting around and not doing anything, we need to remember that verse 15 tells us that Eli was 98 years old and that his eyes didn't move because he couldn't see. 
verse 18 tells us that he was overweight. So we need to give this guy just a little bit of a break here. He wasn't on the battlefield like his sons, and he wasn't busily moving around the town because he was old, blind, and heavy. And not only that, he had a lot on his heart. He was an ineffective leader. His laissez-faire approach to leadership led the nation to such inclusivity and tolerance that it was now in moral anarchy. Instead of taking up his God-appointed role to lead the people in holiness, he in fact led them into rebellion against God. He was a failure as a father. He had a lack of control, or better word is uh, of care, uh, over his children and allowed them to be such rebels that they stole the sacrifices of the people, they stole the offering of God, and that they were having sexual relations with the women who were outside of the tent of meeting. And all of this ought to be a lesson to tell us that leadership matters. And more importantly, integrity in leadership matters. Integrity and character. If a pastor is always angry in the pulpit, you're going to have an angry congregation. If a pastor is uncharitable, so will be the people. If a pastor is kind and humble, the people will be too. Leadership matters in the home and in the church. And his heart is also heavy because... He's anxious about the ark. He was responsible for the care and the protection of it. And it was only by his approval that the ark of God was taken into battle. The ark had gone into battle before and God had never lost. But this time it was seemingly different. Richard Phillips rightly comments, The hearts of sinful men are always uneasy in times of danger. Verse 14 tells us, Eli heard the outcry and asked why this commotion. The man quickly came and reported to Eli. Verse 16, the man Eli said to Eli, I'm the one who came from the battle. I fled from there today. What happened, my son, Eli asked. And now the man lays out what happened in in essentially four stages. The first was that Israel fled from the Philistines. Okay, fine, whatever. Two, there was a great slaughter among the Israelites. Okay, this is war. We don't have numbers here. Three, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead. Okay, stop right there. Eli had been told by two different prophets that this day was going to come. When Samuel told him back in chapter 3, verse 18, his response was, He is the Lord. Let him do what he thinks is good. And as a father, he knew that his sons had some glaring deficiencies. And sure, the prophet said this, but maybe in the heart of Eli, there was this sense that God's really not going to do this. God's really not going to have both of my sons die on the same day. God is love, right? This has to be a veiled threat. 
but God is always good on his word. He is holy beyond compare, and he will not tolerate sin, especially among those that he has called to lead his people. This is a call for you and I to see the holiness of God and to compare it to ours and to repent. Exodus chapter 34 and verses 6 and 7 says this, The Lord... The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in, stead, in, in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So his sons are dead. But it's the fourth piece of news that's absolutely crippling. The ark of God has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of, of God, Eli fell backwards off the chair, this is verse 19, by the city gate. And since he was old and heavy, his neck broke and he died. Again, we have to see here that details matter. Why did Eli fall back and die? Well, there's two answers. The first is a spiritual answer. The ark was gone. God's glory had left Israel, and he was responsible for it. And the other answer is physical. He died because he fell backwards. He was so heavy that the weight crushed his neck, and he died. There's a wordplay here, though, that none of us who speak English would really get by looking at this passage. The word heavy in Hebrew is the word kavod. The word for glory is the word kavod. You hear that? Kavod, kavod. There's a word play here. And this brings attention to where Eli looked for life and glory and purpose. Eli knew somewhere in his heart that the purpose of all of this the purpose of creation was to give God glory, to display his kavod. Yet Eli used God in order for his own kavod. Perhaps you remember when the man of God came and confronted him in chapter 2, verse 29. And said, why then do you despise all my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? You have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves, here's the key word, by making yourselves fat with the best part of all my offerings of my people Israel. The ark was gone. And where is the glory? For Eli, it's around his waist. He is the embodiment of Paul, what Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3. He said, For I have often told you, and now say again in tears, that many live as enemies of the cross. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame, and they're focused on earthly things. Now, don't under, misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that uh, uh, the text means that being overweight is the problem. That's not the problem. This is a worship problem. And this is a glory problem. We join Eli every time we consider something else more glorious than God. 
We might not think of it as glory stealing or even what it truly is, idolatry. But when you and I esteem anything higher than God, we sit with Eli on that same chair. And it, uh, the hard reality of this text is that God uses hard times in order to bring us back to him. He uses suffering and he uses grief to show us what we are prioritizing over him. God is relentless to make sure that his name is praised. And though he might make us fall back on our chair, it's because he prizes his glory and his honor above all else. And this story ought to, uh, of Eli ought to naturally lead us to second, take an Ichabod inventory. You'll see what I mean here in a second. Take an Ichabod inventory. Verses 19 through 22 introduces us to one of the more redemptive characters in this entire story. Her story is only told in four verses. She has no name. But here we get a glimpse of a woman who shines above all of her contemporaries. She was the wife of Phineas. She undoubtedly suffered much because of the sin of her husband. Churches, by and large, I'm not saying this is uh, Emmanuel, but by and large, churches don't often give enough credit to pastors' wives and what they experience. Living in a glass bowl is not for the faint of heart. And she understood this well here. She would have been well aware of the issues that her husband dealt with. She was well aware of how he took advantage of, of the people in the temple. She, she would have known very well how he was stealing the offerings from God. She would have known very well of the, of the uh, sexual immorality that he was engaging with with these women at the church. She more than likely felt the public shame and humiliation of being married to a priest who, who engaged in these sorts of things. And who knows what happened behind closed doors? But we do know that there is a life that is bound up in these four verses. And that regardless of the chaos of her marriage and in the chaos of the national crisis around her, her story is one of unwavering faith in God. Let's start reading in verse 19. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth when she heard the news about the capture of God's ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she collapsed and gave birth because her labor pains came on her. So traumatic stress can spike high levels of cortisol and cytokines, which can induce labor. And if the levels are high enough, they can even trigger life-threatening conditions such as preeclampsia. And whatever the case for this lady, the onset of labor hit her like that, and it became fatal for her. Verse 20, as she was dying, the woman took, taking care of, women taking care of her said, don't be afraid, you've given birth to a son. But she didn't respond or pay attention. Again, the details matter here. Because to an Israelite woman, there was no higher honor than to give birth to a son. Like this was her life's 
purpose. And here she is in the pinnacle of her life's social purpose. And she is so grieved by the theological loss that is all around her that she doesn't even respond. She does name him, though. And she gives him a name that's a commentary to what's going on in Israel. Verse 21, she named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel. Another way of saying that is, where's the glory? It's a little ambiguous in that. Referring to the capture of the ark of God and to the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. The glory has departed from Israel. Where's the glory, she said? The ark of God has been captured. So we need to see here that even in her death, she is more concerned with the glory of God than even her own life. She had prepared for this moment when her husband let her down and embarrassed her so much throughout the community. She was still full on with God. Alistair Begg points out here is that there was more theology in this woman's death than in her husband's entire career as a priest. And the question that we're left with asking ourselves is, are you so impressed by the glory of God that life itself takes a back seat? Are you preparing yourself for the day when the cold dew of death lies on your brow, that you can sing, if ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. Because the reality is, is that you and I are creatures of habit. And habits don't break easily. Patterns run deep, and we think that if we can just coast through life, if we can just do uh, the motions, we have time to get right with God. We may end up on our deathbed cursing him and wondering where he has been the entire time. The time to prepare is now. You see, Eli and his daughter-in-law were asking the question, where's the glory? And the answer is that the glory did not depart when the ark was taken away. The glory had departed long before that. The glory, the ark was captured because the glory of the Lord had already departed from the hearts of those in Israel. And this text is a warning for us who are in a few different stages. The first is that this is a warning for us who are putting off this religious thing. For those of us that think, you know, there's still time for me to live life to the fullest, to do all those things regardless of whether they're right or wrong, then I can get serious with these things. Those such attitudes must re realize that you are just as blind as Eli. And if you think that you can just one day take those blinders off, we ought to hear what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, in their case, the God of this age, who is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You can try as hard as you will to take those blinders off. But the truth is, you are not a spiritual optometrist. You can't do it. 
there's only one way to see again, and that's through Jesus. And Paul goes on in verse 6 to say, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown it in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now in Romans 10, he makes it even more plain. He says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. If that's you, you don't have to be sitting on the chair of Eli. You can trust in Christ you don't need to put the glory around your waist or on the shelf or wherever it is. There's a greater glory in Christ Jesus who will never leave you or forsake you. He will give you a future and a hope. Don't put this off. Today is the day to receive Christ Jesus. And second, this is a warning for us who are ready to throw in the towel. So I'm done. It can be tempting to look at our broken lives and our sinful struggles and conclude, God's gone. What do I have left? And indeed, there can be times in life when it seems like God is gone. But if there is that internal sense that God is not present, the problem is not with God. God the Father removed his presence from Jesus for a time so that he would never have to leave us again. The very word Emmanuel, God with us, is true today, tomorrow, and forever. And so the answer then is to repent and return to Jesus. In Hosea chapter 6, Hosea says this, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us and he will bind up our wounds. He will revive us after two days and on the third day he will raise us up so that we can live in his presence. Let's strive to know the Lord. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. And third, this is a warning to every church. There is constant pressure from the culture from our sinful inclinations and from the devil to compromise the faith. But if we're to turn to the letters of, to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we would find that Jesus' patience with the churches that will not preach his gospel and that uh, refuse to teach him that his patience only lasts so long. Look what he says in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, he says to the church of Ephesus, Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The lampstand was a symbol for the presence of Jesus within the church. Can you imagine any more crippling thing for Jesus to say to our church, I am removing my lampstand from you. 
And it is possible to have a church building. It is possible to have uh, worship services. It is possible to have a lot of people in the pews who are very happy. But Jesus has removed his presence a long time ago. How many of our churches can rightly rename themselves Ichabod Community Church? Emmanuel is not exempt from this. And there is no guarantee that we will be any different unless we continually ask, where's the glory? And find it only in Jesus Christ. If we were to stop here in the text, it would be pretty discouraging. <laughs> Being a, a discouraging end to Israel. But this is not the end of the story. As we move forward next week, we'll find that God is not done with Israel. He's going to move on to make sure that his people and the nations see him as supremely glorious. And he's not done with you either when you see him as such. Friends, let's pray.